Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church in modern times and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Dr. John Bruchowski. Dr. John Bruchowski received his MD from the University of South Alabama College of Medicine in 1987. He then completed his residency at the Eastern Virginia Medical Center and the Jones Institute for Reproductive Medicine in Norfolk, Virginia, receiving board certification in 1993. Motivated by a desire to become the best trained physician possible, Dr. Bruchowski learned methods for performing abortions, sterilization, and artificial reproductions during his residency. His follow-up experiences with the women he served made him question whether the services he offered were truly improving their situations in any way. After a spiritual awakening, he returned to the Catholic faith of his youth and answered God's call to start a medical practice that truly helped women. Dr. Bruchowski founded Tebiak OBGYN in Fairfax, Virginia in 1994, one of the largest pro-life private OBGYNs in line with biblical medical ethics and pro-life values. The center provides care to women regardless of their religious beliefs, background, or financial situation. In 2000, Dr. Bruchowski found Divine Mercy Care as an umbrella organization to support TEPIAC and other pro-life healthcare initiatives. Dr. Brutowski's tireless leadership in the pro-life movement has led to countless other conversions, positive birth experiences, and the advancement of fertility awareness, family planning, and religious freedom in the medical world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brutowski. Thank you. Dr. Bruchowski, you grew up in a strong Catholic family, and what led you to practice medicine was a need to serve and give back to the community. Yet, as you were drawn to become an OBGYN, you saw service in, as you said, I wanted to liberate women from the chains of their fertility. In what ways was fertility presented as a problem, and did your faith challenge that at first? You know, I grew up in a great Catholic family in northern New Jersey, and um, that line is a borrowing from Karl Marx about liberating people from the chains of their faith. Fertility in many of the females in our home and in our family, uh, you saw PMS, difficult pregnancies, hemorrhaging, bleeding, the challenge during the 60s and 70s of a whoops baby. Mm -hmm. And so as, as my family began to try to engage all that on a practical level, I saw that. You know, I, I was born in 1960. Mm -hmm. I was in high school from 74 to 78. And many of my friends then were beginning to wield the power of education and pushing back. And uh, we began to find out that there were ways to manipulate the cycle, mm -hmm. birth control pills. And everybody and their mother at that time, remember those were high dose birth control pills. Right. Uh, so it was liberating them to work, but there were many side effects, including blood clots and heart disease and cancer, uh, let alone the sexual liberation. Right. So it, it was kind of a dynamic. Also, my high school education was a bunch of Salesian priests, and, you know, uh, things were changing then. God was love. Ethics was more situational and relative. So I don't think I really learned the teaching of the church until after my conversion. Right. And I also had an experience with Salesians. It's funny you should say that, where I was really questioned about why I didn't want to be a priest by priests. <laughs> so it was a strange situation yes. to be in where I was fighting the priest 
as to why I didn't think it was appropriate for me to want to be a priest. So I um, I can't agree with you more. Uh, there are many times that I find myself kind of an opposite side of morality on this issue of sex, contraception, marriage. You know, God understands. Uh, situational ethics was taught in our Jesuit college. But there was this tension, this dynamic between what was taught and what was actually practiced. So do you think that is what prevented you from seeing the facts at that time? The education and the experience of women around you who seem to be suffering through different fertility crises, whether small or large? Yes. So, um, you know, being a male, I've had the blessing of listening to really good women complain. <laughs> Out their cycles. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and once again, God has a sense of humor here because in this era of identity politics and, you know, we go to a woman because she looks like us and she knows what we're doing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've had cancer and I've had female cancer doctors and I've been in a coma. And so I've had female coma doctors and I've listened at the feet of really good women, both before, during and after. This idea of, on one end, their language of their body was speaking to them, and the only way they could deal with it was to suppress it through contraception. Right. And then there were other women who said, I feel bloated, headachey, I'm miserable, I can't think, my hair's falling out, I'm depressed. Well, you've heard that the pill mimics pregnancy. So there was this dynamic, as you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just listened. I sat at their feet and I just listened to them. And now this was not even morality. This was health. Mm -hmm. But then as all good things, you start with one problem that you want to fix. And then the slippery slope, it becomes, I just want to have sex. Right. There's nothing wrong with sex. I'm interested in experimenting and liberating myself. And, you know, I was there in the 70s and early 80s. Once I got to college, it was a free-for-all in the sense of, you know, the dorms were kind of co-ed. I was an RA in a dorm, and I had to go through the women's side every weekend to, you know, see what was going on, and they all would be cycling together. Oh, no. <laughs> and they would be complaining about whatever. And I realized then that, you know, if medicine could help that, you know, sex was already being divorced from babies because of contraception. By the time I got there, Kimberly, well, you just have to protect yourself from children. Children were being talked about as a sexually transmitted disease. Right. And there was no connection between the act and babies. It was the act and pleasing someone else or getting off. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden being used. As I was going through, once again, most of these relationships were breaking up. Mm -hmm. One night stands, few months, done, over the depression, the sadness, move on to the next person. And, you know, these were really good people. But if you weren't hearing the truth from the pulpit and you weren't hearing the truth from your parents, right. when I got into medical school, I really wanted to help women. And I found myself, I had a knack for PMS. I had a knack for menopause. I don't know how many men have ever said that before. <laughs> you might be one of the only men to ever say something like that. And it only happened because in my clinic, in my medical school training, I would have lines of people sitting outside at the public health clinic wow. where I was being put in IUDs. And they all came to me because I was nice. I said, thank you. I laughed with these ladies. Wow. Cried with them. I really think that, thank God to my family and my female cousins, they taught me how to you know, have compassion, not just empathy, not just sympathy, but actually compassion to walk with these people. 
And you said abortion was considered to be part of the standard of care and also could bring in quite a bit of extra money. When you began your residency in Virginia, you believed the work at the Jones Institute of Reproductive Medicine in Norfolk was on the cutting edge of fertility care and that the church would come around to sexual liberation for women in time. There you learned to perform first and second trimester abortions, administer contraception, and create embryos for in vitro fertilization. So in trying to understand the mindset of a doctor who believes he's truly helping women through abortion, did you ever grapple with the personhood of the aborted fetus or the morality of creating embryos? Are you kidding me? No. (laughs) Really? Okay. Uh, So, you know, you go through four years of Jesuit education, and it was mostly about situational ethics and relativism, proportionalism. You do the best you can. These are really not solutions. But in this day and age, the church has just not caught up yet. John Paul's still stuck in the past. Good theologians across the world argue and dissent from teaching. And these are the same people saying you can dissent from women as priests. You can dissent from most things in the Catholic Church that you don't agree with and still be a good Catholic. Mm -hmm. By the time I got to medical school, it was a done deal, meaning you just were surrounded by really good people who were trying to improve the quality of health of women. And contraception and abortion were just part of it. And even though as a younger man, I remember my daddy driving home on that day after Roe passed. Oh, Johnny, this is Black Monday. I was shooting baskets at the age of 12. Wow. He was a good man. My mother was a good woman. They prayed for me throughout all this. But I just slipped away. So they were still opposed to what you were doing. Or did they see it as just part of the natural progression of medicine? Kimberly, what I love about your podcast... (laughs) is that I didn't tell them. Okay. Why would I, I'm a, you know, your parents love you so much. Mm-hmm. Part of the shame. It's part of the sadness. Just don't talk to them about it. And it's easier to tell them after you've done it rather than during, because God forbid, you know, my daddy tried to fight the liberalism in my college with good books and good conversations, because that's how we grew up with that good stuff. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that by 1983 through seven, when I was going to medical school, I was already beginning to put that barrier, that wall that we all do with our loved ones when we're doing something that they don't agree with. Right. My prayer life fell off. I began to lose my sense of the mother of God. I began to lose my sense of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Catholic Church was crazy. They're all talking about old stuff that doesn't matter anymore. And so I went to Eastern Virginia School of Medicine, a Jones Institute, the OBGYN department, Kimberly, because they were excellent. They were a contraceptive research and development center. They didn't push abortion, but they absolutely taught it to you if you needed to do it. And oh, by the way, we were the home of the first IVF baby in our country. Wow. And part of our electives were sucking eggs and making embryos and, you know, participating in IUD studies. It was just part of what you did. Now, was that around the same time as the Jerome Lejeune testimony? I know you said that that affected you, that trial of Maryville in which two couples got a divorce and they had frozen embryos that they had to then legally decide what to do with. The husband wanted to terminate, the wife wanted to preserve. So um, several things. One was the summer before I went to my residency, a dear friend of mine took me to Guadalupe in Mexico City. I was barely Catholic at the time. We were doing some other things and we made a visit to the Basilica. That's where I heard 
why are you hurting me? And that was always in the back of my head somewhere, you know. But when I went to Eastern Virginia to learn this... Since you were part of making those embryos, how did that affect you? No, right. And so what happened is, is that our department were the owners of the embryos. Remember, this was before informed consent. It was because of this consent that our department did two things. Hey, we need to create an informed consent for the woman. You know, your podcast is about the dignity of women. Mm -hmm. We were dumping in large amounts of hormones and chemicals to increase how many eggs they had. Mm -hmm. Flooded their abdomen with fluid and nausea and pain. And then we would suck out five, 10, 15, 20 eggs. We would mix all of them with sperm and we would clap when the good ones grew a little bit. We would not say anything when the embryo's quality was bad. We not only did informed consent, Howard Jones coined the term pre-embryo. Remember, if you tell a Christian that you're messing with embryos, that's after conception. Well, science was now changing the face of the world. Technology was running before any sort of language change or bioethics. And we were creating words to justify our actions after we were doing the work to get there. So absolutely, while I was there, because of the good education I was getting, well, Johnny, they're pre-embryos. They don't have the same dignity as your cousin, who's third one. And they're not just your appendix. There's something that has the potential to be life. And so therefore you can freeze it, you can burn it, you can mistake them, you, you can put five back to get one because of the intrinsic, not efficacious nature of the process. Right. And I was in that area going, um, I guess it's not that big of a deal. We don't really know when life begins. Uh, You know, you can still have twins after five or six or seven days of age. Who knows? Hmm. And that's when Jerome Lejeune, in our case, wrote about the concentration can. And he wrote about how when you freeze these, you're freezing your family because we're all part of the genetic family of the human person. In the beginning was life and the life was a code and the code was human. When an egg meets a sperm and the pronuclei merge. Oh my God, this was radically, remember during those times, definitions were changing. When does life begin? After implantation. Right. Why did we change that? In order to experiment on embryos in IVF that were left over. It's a very inefficient process and there are spare parts. So now in my office, when I talk to patients, Kimberly, I simply say, you know, folks, if you're going to go to IVF, you have one question you must ask each other. Are the embryos they create your children or your property? Do you own them or do you love them? Because that attitude towards those embryos make a darn difference. Wow, that's really, that's really great. (laughs) And just once again, you don't answer the question for them. These mothers, because of the hormones and the desire to conceive, that still small voice that the prophets talked about, that conscience. Why do we have such a challenging issue right now with adopting embryos? Mm -hmm. Because moms, after all of it, still go, those are my kids. Right. Even the ones that are successful in IVF. You're right on something here. And I was living it. That's why I can't throw stones because Mm -hmm. I'm the poster child. The prodigal son speaks. I know. 
And you were drastically influenced by the patients you served as well, whose health, wellness, and happiness seemed to get worse after treatment. As you said, I was almost pouring gasoline onto the fire. It was then that you visited a pregnancy center and were overwhelmed by their understanding of fertility as a gift rather than a curse and that children were not sexually transmitted diseases. Explain to me what that was like. Here you are, a medical student who's performing abortion creating embryos and then you go to kind of the other side of the tracks almost to a pregnancy center so i was a resident i wasn't a medical student at the time it was like 87 and 88 i'm trying to go to the beach to get away to walk on the beach to think i like water i like sand i like the night sky i can see comets down on virginia beach in the dark areas and so i drove by on witch duck road i saw a pregnancy center So I walked in not knowing, and it was literally a mission of a local evangelical church. And I loved the beautiful colors and the welcoming. And I realized that they were there to help women not choose abortion. So that was just sparked by curiosity walking in there. God has a sense of humor. (laughs) Um, People like me um, need a lot of hard heads. So I was becoming schizophrenic, Kimberly. Can you imagine during the daytime doing all sorts of things to stamp out fertility, the language we were using? Every child's a wanted child. Keep abortion safe, legal, and rare, but you got to do it. I was taught as a young man, don't be an ideologue, do it. Mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer, not to act is to act, not to speak is to speak. We won't be held guiltless. Wait a second. Silence in the face of evil is evil. If you think abortion needs to be done and you're pro-choice and you're an OBGYN, damn it, you better do abortions. If you're pro-life and you're an OBGYN, then you better get involved and do what you can to work with pregnancy centers, learn natural fertility awareness. You know what I'm saying? Right. Get involved. Do it. Act. Yes. And so I went there. We prayed. It reminded me back of my childhood. You know, I prayed for the conversion of Russia when I was little. Oh, it wow. was like funny, man. <laughs> well, we didn't really have Mary there because she was called an abomination. But we believed that Jesus was with us. Two or three are gathered. He's present. And I would hold hands and I would pray with them. And right. they became my friends. They were literally discipling me. And I would go the next morning and I would go into my clinic. And one of my patients were happy that I gave her a twofer. I aborted twins. Mm. And another lady was glad that I was able to tie her tubes because her boyfriend left her. You know, she wanted to move on with her life. And um, boy, oh boy, it was really a mess because, you know, at night there I was learning the language of walking with somebody through a crisis pregnancy giving them good information, finding housing and clothing and good care. And during the daytime, I was back in my world. And once again, I'm not a rabid abortionist at this point. It's not like I wanted to do this, but part of your training was either refer or perform. And I wanted to be a good doc because that's what my patients thought they wanted. So I would abort these sick children and they cried. These women never wanted to see their babies. They didn't even want to talk about them. Mm. So rather than me building relationships, I was putting walls between people. You know, here I am not very honest and I'm not telling the nighttime people that I'm working and I'm not te- I'm not telling my my doctor friends that I'm at night, you know, spending my nights off, which were few, with wonderful people in Witch Duck Road. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Just before you began your residency, you visited the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico and had a mystical experience that you tried to brush aside. But then two years later, during a late-term abortion, you delivered a live baby that had to be rushed to the neonatal intensive care unit. How did Our Lady gently pursue you from the Tepeyac Shrine to the neonatologist to the visionary's message to you at Medjugorje? 
Oh, great. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> no, you're good. You're good, young lady. Um, so first, I grew up loving Our Lady of Chestahova. My parents dedicated me at my baptism. It was like a big deal. They used to say I would spontaneously smile as a baby whenever I saw her. I have no recollection. So I prayed a decade of the rosary every morning with my dad and brothers for the fall, the conversion of Russia, the Fatima promise. We also prayed for the church. And in my lifetime, it fell. So I grew up with a love for the Blessed Mother. She loved me. She was part of the family. Do whatever he tells you. She was defined by Christ. So I didn't really have a big problem with her. And so when I was asked by my friend to go to Mexico City to help him, we visited the shrine. And the image was beautifully natural. It's cactus, hemp. It's a poncho. And there was not a lot of people there that day. And so I just drove underneath it, like on that little conveyor belt. And I thought I heard, why are you hurting me? And I just thought it was the beer, the heat, typical. <laughs> Cerveza. Cerveza. <laughs> and so if today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Well, I was realizing slowly, not really then, but later, as my first two years of residency, I was getting harder and harder. Sure, I'll terminate this six-weeker. Well, Johnny, she's 13 weeks. She's 17 weeks. Back then, we had to dismember them or use saline to scald them. We weren't puncturing their chest and shooting digoxin or potassium to stop their hearts. It was a bloody business. And my fighting with these fetuses that I called them then, because you can't call them a baby, it was close combat. Marines and other military people out there know what I'm talking about. I was taking life very up close and personal. Not a lot, but enough. And once you slip into this and you start buying into I need this for my health, or I need this for my convenience, or I need this because I just don't want it. You lose the concept of welcome versus wanted, and it becomes a thing. So you distance it. It becomes you know, something to protect yourself from. And while I was there in my residency on a day, in one room, I was saving a 25-weeker. And in another room, I took a bad history. She didn't want the baby. Her water had broken. And rather than being careful and waiting like we do now, I pitted the baby out. And the baby was five grams over 500. I had to call the neonatologists. Dr. Debbie Plum, who I just got back in contact with, wow. walks in and says to me, Johnny, you're better than this. Stop giving me tumors. Because remember, the mother didn't want it. I didn't do a good history and physical. I just helped her get rid of it. But the baby weighed more than the state law allowed. I wasn't just throwing a bag on the baby or a towel to suffocate it at the time. I put it on the scale before I was going to kill it. And it was 505 grams. I had to call the nursery. The neonatologist rushed in, put an intubation down, you know, where they're pumping the airbag. They're making sure the vital signs are stable. She then took me to coffee the next morning and said, Johnny, you're better than this. You shouldn't be doing this. You should be taking care of two people. That was the first time, except out of a legal mentality of getting sued because the baby was sick. Can you imagine, Kimberly? Wow. This lady challenged me over a cup of coffee. And then she said, oh, by the way, I just got back from Medjugorje. I know you're not Catholic, but I just want you to know that it really changed my life. I went there with Steubenville, and I went, um, nah, the kind of the church I go to now doesn't really quite do this. <laughs> Two days later, my mother called and said, hey, Johnny, do you want to go to Dubrovnik for winter break? And oh, by the way, when we're there... I heard about Medjugorje, and I'm kind of interested in going. Do you want to come with me? Wow. You can't my pass mom, that up. No. My mom and of course. Of course. And so that's what happened. Wow. And so I almost think it's this hound of heaven. Mm -hmm. I don't deserve any of this, Kimberly. It's all pure grace. 
our Heavenly Father, Mother, love us so much that when I went there with my mom, there was only five Americans. There was about 30 Belgian people who spoke mostly French for his pro-life work. That bothered me initially. But there was a small group of Italians. And on the hill, uh, my whole life came crashing down. Right. I can't get into the details too much because I'm still... I know. I I went there as well. And it was kind of a surprise. I didn't know anything about Medjugorje. I was at Steubenville and I was studying abroad and a bunch of friends said, hey, we're going to go on this trip. I said, that sounds cool. You know, I'm on board with that. I don't know anything about this place, but I've never been there and I'm up for trying new things. And then we're like on these ridiculous roads on this bus that are bumping all over the place. And there's men getting on with machine guns asking to see our passport. And I'm like, oh, great. This is where I'm going to die, you know. And then sure enough, you get to Medjugorje and you you really can't even explain all the things that happened there. I mean, we met the visionaries and uh, climbed the mountains barefoot, and it's just incredible. I yeah, understand. So, <laughs> you know, the same thing. And once again, you know, I always leave it up to the church to help me with all this. But it was as if scales came off my eyes. I instantly knew the love of Christ and his mother, and I felt mercy and forgiveness. And one of the things that was most valuable to me here is that this whole world of contraception and abortion and sterilization involves decisions, guilt, shame, empowerment, but also more importantly, mercy and forgiveness. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, girlfriend. It's uh, no, Kimberly, it's real. I mean, and so, yes, I lived with the Fatima messages instantaneously on that hill, prayer from the heart. If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. I saw how hard my heart was. My whole life passed before me. I was given a bunch of work to do, and most of the things that I was told by this woman um, <laughs> out of the blue have come to pass. I can't explain it, wow. but I can tell you that the peace and the joy and knowing that our faith, scripturally and in tradition, faith and reason, left and right, social justice and the gospel of life are all together. It hangs together. Right. And it's amazing how it resonates now in a world that has gone crazy. We're at a watershed moment, right? Right now, states are now vocally and openly saying abortion on demand. And if the child's real sick or if it's not wanted, just get rid of it right after birth. New York State, my state of Virginia. Right. I know. And, you know, we're at that moment now, the battle in the church, outside the church, with the churches, with politics. I really think that it's a time for us, you know, the lady, the people of God to step up. Yes, we can't be silent anymore. It's impossible to be silent and still preserve life as Christ wants us to live it. I agree. I absolutely believe that, as Lenin said, he would never become communist if he met somebody with the faith of St. Paul. Rather than being hesitant and serving man, trying to be prudent, trying to be calculating, trying to be tolerant serve the lord right yes and i'm curious as to how your professors and the other medical residents reacted to your refusal to create embryos and perform abortions after you came back and had this life-changing experience and you made this decision you really had to all of a sudden kind of come back i guess with your tail between your legs <laughs> a little bit and say oh yeah and i'm not gonna do any of this stuff anymore who yes. knows what the reaction was gonna be well, I can tell you that when I went to confession for the first time in a long time, it was the most freeing experience in my entire life. Not only did I feel a burden lifted, but my heart opened up and black sludge poured out. You put your hand in the side of Christ for the first time. 
and you realize that the blood of Christ has saved you, and that the church was given to us to baptize and to teach, and that these sacraments are not jokes, and that the Eucharist is real. And so I hesitated a lot. I'm so unfaithful, Kimberly, that I procrastinate. But this, I couldn't do that. I came home. I remember taking a deep breath, thinking about it all the way home, and I went into Dr. Georgiana's office. I knocked on the door, walked in. I said, Hey, uh, Dr. G, I um, came back. Oh, you had a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm back. But um, I had a religious experience and I can't <laughs> sterilize anymore. She said, what? I said, yeah, I had another experience. And I think sick children need not be terminated or aborted. We should treat them like a perinatal hospice if they're that sick or just do good medicine if they're real sick. And I really think that there's got to be a better way than contraception because you taught me about progesterone and about mucus changes. So I'd like to do natural fertility awareness. <laughs> and she looked at me and she says, you found Jesus. You have a Jesus experience. Oh, no. Really? Well, I, I can't argue with that, son. But I think you're wrong. Get out of here. Um, just don't spread it. Don't talk to your friends. Get out of here. That was it. Huh. And she said, you know, she couldn't argue with my faith. Interesting. I couched it as a faith issue. But the data was beginning to accumulate. My friends were beginning to question it. My fellow residents were saying, I don't want to do this. As hmm. soon as I told them that I stopped, a bunch of us stopped doing them. Wow. Because I think people just need to see that it can be done. And I'm, I'm little. I don't know how to do all this. But one thing led to another. A Mormon young man, a young Latter-day Saint, came up to me and said, I always knew you could do this. Let's go get some dinner. He was waiting for me, the only one. Oh, my gosh. And all of a sudden, my life changed. You begin to work at the pregnancy center. You begin to give talks. You begin to talk about natural family planning and their fertility awareness. I stopped sterilizing. And then you learn to talk about it in a different way. And they didn't understand me. But back then, there wasn't the same hostility as there is now. Probably look very different now, I would guess, if you suddenly said that you weren't going to do this because it's about money, it's about profit, it's not so, just about change of heart. Remember, the primary motivation is ideological. A woman needs a right to choose for any reason at any time during the entire pregnancy. And now we're having post- and After, right. It's just progressing. We have Pete Singer at Princeton saying, oh, just do an IQ test. And if they fail, they can be used for parts. Mm. You know, the whole genetic industry has been changing. Back when I was there, only 2% believed in sex selection abortions. Now it's 80%, 90%. Right. Back then, only about 30% of people aborted Down syndrome. Today, it's over 95%. Mm. And then this watershed, this was back in 89 and 88. I had a chance to go hear Tom Hilgers out in Omaha. Mm. I met uh, Janet Smith. All of a sudden, you meet all these people in the NFP industry back then, and there was a better way to do things. In fact, it was sound medicine. There was good data now coming out of the NFP community. The three phrases you heard from Our Lady in Yugoslavia, which were Johnny, be the best doctor you can be, always see the poor, and follow the biblical teachings of my son's church. These became the foundation for the Tepeyac Family Center you created in 1994 with a mission to serve all women, especially the poor, according to the divine will. Tepeyac OBGYN is today one of the leading and largest pro-life health centers in the USA. How is Tepiak's service consistent with the dignity of the human person in a time when the abortion industry is so greatly influencing general OBGYN care? 
Um, <laughs> that's really simple. No one has a relationship with their abortionist. No one. You go there for a procedure. You don't go there for health care. You might see a nurse practitioner a few times, but it's not like that's your primary care. You're going there for an abortion. End of discussion. It's like a vending machine. You walk out of there. You did the best you could. You steal yourself. All those things are exactly right about what you said, about how she said it. Johnny, be the best you can be. Be board certified. Be excellent. I have to know everything there is to know about contraceptives, IUDs, to give people real options. Number two is, you know, we're now nonprofit at Tepiac OBGYN because we want to see all patients, meaning we raise money through Divine Mercy Care because we want to see the haves and the have-nots, those who have insurance and those who don't. The third way is the guidance is that in my non-Catholic days, every pastor had a different take on scripture. You know, not only did the Jesuits convince me that it was okay to do all these things because you do the best you can, you weigh out the proportions, you know, you do the most good for the person. My Protestant days, you if we don't have a teaching on it, go and sin boldly, as my non-Catholics would say. And then different pastors would tell you different things. So I was aborting children and hurting women. I wasn't listening to them. Do you know if you give a woman an option for their sick child, they'll choose perinatal hospice? So when you talk about the dignity of woman, Kimberly, I began to talk to people like Hans, the Kimberly and Scott, and Janet, and all these great docs out there, the top people in ovulation method billing, Creighton method, symptothermal, couple to couple, I was there with Mercedes Wilson and Family of the Americas in the beginning. And you began to see people coming and you realize that in our practice, health is based on relationships mm -hmm. found in community between patient and her family, doctor and patient, and ultimately between patient and our father in heaven. We're family. Right. That's, there's a son. We're children together. There's a mother. This is your mother, John 19. This whole idea, do whatever he tells you. Health is based on relationships. Medicine becomes an act of mercy, like the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. We're just the shopkeepers. We just need to help him do what he does. We're instruments of divine mercy. Illness is one of the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Counseling the doubtful, instructing the ignorant, clothing the naked. They're all the same. And then you hate the disease, but you love the patient. Love is what promotes this. How do you know you love? Because you see those haves and have-nots. You go the extra mile. You make the house call. You listen to the woman's body, the language of her body. Children become a gift, like you said before. And then lastly, you cooperate with many people across the spectrum to build unity in the body of Christ. No one wants to become an abortionist. Why? Because I did them and my hand is connected to my heart and your heart becomes hardened. The vast majority of students who try to perform abortions don't do it. And that's the real issue. It's intrinsic to the human person. Medicine is about cooperating and sacrificing for the other. Greater love has no man than he who gives his life for another. Well, the doctors today have to make a choice. And there's a lot of young men and women of all states that are now coming up and want this because healthcare has become so technology driven and so dehumanized that more and more people are beginning to see, wait, there's got to be a better way. Great civilizations are not murdered. Instead, they take their own lives. It's from within. Right. Um, 
evil is not defeated by great movements. Evil is defeated by little people doing the little things with great love. Whether you're a mom, whether you're a doc, whether you're a teacher, you know, my son's cleaning out the inside of a water pump on a massive refinery. You work with the guys around you. You do the best you can do. That's what changes the world. You say communal, medicine as community and as relational. That's certainly not something that I think generations past saw as something that was communal or having a relationship. There was this disconnect before bedside manner became something that was so critical to medical care. And you referred to patients as maybe a number or a last name or an organ. Right. Something that kind of really took them away from their personhood. It is fairly new to even have that idea of bedside manner, community, personhood in general in medicine. Why do you think there's a billion, billion, billion dollar industry of integrative alternative healthcare? Yes. Because they're going to try to choose anything else. Let's try food. Let's try herbs. Let's try whatever. I don't trust the doctor. They're being paid by big pharma. Mm -hmm. I get it. We talk about body, soul, and spirit. It's always a body, soul, and spirit issue. You try to get to that root of the problem. You don't want to put a Band-Aid on it. Yes, you know, I was taught put a birth control pill for everything. Too much bleeding, too little bleeding, too much PMS, too much this, too much depression. Oh, just use a pill. Change the dose of the pill. How dare you? Women deserve better. And there are more and more women wanting to go green. What's interesting is that when I talk about communal, it doesn't even stop there. It's about communion. Mm -hmm. It's Eucharistic. When he said from the cross, this is my mother, this is your son, his side opened up a few minutes later and out poured blood and water. The blood of Jesus covers us. That's what saves us, his death, our response to that. And once again, this ain't rocket science, Kimberly. You know this best because of your title, Dignity of Women. I was faced with my body, my choice. That used to be my Bible. It was me and my thought and my perception and my decision. I have every right to do with what I want to do with my body. My body, my choice, that was my rallying cry. As a man, as a doctor of women, once again, I learned something else through women. Please listen to my body. Get to the root of my issues. Don't dump class one carcinogens into my body to shut off my pituitary to override my cycle because of x y or z so here i was in the middle of this psychotic break my body my choice i'm trying to stand on that and i began to hear with all due clarity this is my body given up for you do this in remembrance of me that's what i heard really good women who were falling in love and they were being used by their boyfriend or the pornography. My body, my choice, and pornography go together. Mm -hmm. Because conscience, if you leave me to my own conscience, within seconds, I'm off base. That's why I had to find the Catholic Church again because of the teachings of the Magisterium and John Paul's Theology of the Body and 2,000 years of incredible teaching. It all hangs together. And then you see these people espouse it with clarity and simplicity, but not legalism. It comes from the heart and love. That's that opened wound in his side that I'm talking about. And that's what doctors are trying to do today. We want a reformation within Christian Catholic healthcare and within the church. Right. There's no more cheap grace. There's no more cheap mercy. We have to meet people where they're at, walk with them, accompany them, but then show them that there's a better way to do things and allow them to make the choice. You gave up everything for the pearl of great price. I'm incredibly blessed. You just have to do what the Lord's put in front of you.
Your conversion story offers a lot of hope and healing to others who have had abortions and to those who have performed acts against life and human dignity. How did you work through your own self-forgiveness and what do you do when those sins creep back up to haunt you again? <laughs> um, when I came back off the hill, I felt a peace. I felt love. I hugged my mother in a house in the middle of Medjugorje, just like I hugged her when I was a little boy near Fatima. We said a rosary together for the first time in many years, and my mother just hugged me and held me. So I went from being held by the mother of God to my mother on earth. She saved some bologna from dinner for me. I'm Polish. I love bologna. I grew up in New Jersey. We ate bologna in our room in the middle of January of maybe 1990, I guess, or 89, somewhere along there. And I just smiled because not only did I go to confession, getting right with the Lord first, I also was right with my mom. And it was this welcoming. God's mercy is far greater and far deeper. And so, yes, it does get dark. Yes, I had PTSD at watching Unplanned. That's me. I did that. I've known Abby really from the beginning, and it's hard to watch. There are things that I do at the hospital sometimes, but you know you're loved. You're a new creation. Revelation 21.5. I can't go back. I have nowhere else to go. He loves me. That's enough. And yes, I get down. I see, you know, the world going crazy. We're not winning enough victories, whatever, in politics. And then something simple comes across, like who I see here in my office and the blessings. You just adjust your vision and your heart, and you do begin to see many miracles around you. Sin begins in the mind, as Paul says, and I just get as depressed as anybody. However, you stop the act. No, Jesus is Lord and Savior. He loves me. He's given me a mission to do. He's asking me, Johnny, who am I? If you love me, feed my sheep, care for my people. It's the whole John 21 thing. That's what happens, Kimberly. And that's what happens to all of us. I cry now, not because I feel guilty that I did all these things. I feel guilty that I didn't love him as much as he loved me. No, that's and, great. And that's what promotes you to get up in the morning. Yes. And do it again, even when it's dark and even when it's silent. And you may not know or feel or see those moments on the hills in Medjugorje, but you know that the glory to come and the promise to his church and his people will never be taken from the faiths of the earth. And he will walk with us. And it's that that, you know, OK, I can do this again. You do have to examine yourself every day and talk to people like you. And uh <laughs> Well, thank you for being with us and tell everybody how they can find out more about the Tepeyac Family Center, make a donation if they so choose to Divine Mercy Care. Tell us how we can find you. You can find us at tepeyacobgyn.com, T-E-P-E-Y-A-C, or divinemercycare.org. We are helping other practices serve, inspire, and unify the body of Christ. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. John Bruchowski has been our guest today on The Dignity of Women. No